Hello there, I'm Michael Banks, host of Leadership Luminaries, a PeopleSmart production. PeopleSmart provides innovative learning solutions, both virtual and in-person, to organizations in many countries, cultures, and languages, focusing on leadership and people development in the context of digital transformation, change management, culture change, and the increasing need for emotional intelligence. On this podcast series, I have always tried to present an eclectic array of guests, and this episode is no exception. Rupert Callender is a leadership luminary, a pioneer in the field of funerals. In this interview, Rupert will talk about how he's translated his life experiences into a niche, eco-friendly business that serves families in the most difficult of times, the passing of a loved one. Rupert Callender set up the Green Funeral Company in 1999 in response to his own experiences around bereavement and ran it with his partner Claire up until the beginning of this year, 2021, when she left the business to take a break from death. They both brought their experiences within the rave and punk subcultures to their work, as well as some more unusual influences like the crop circle scene. They pioneered a stripped-backed and immersive way of working which threw away the formality and faux Victoriana of the modern traditional funeral. Their watchwords are honesty, transparency, and participation. And this they bring to every funeral that they do. Rue edited Writing on Death and co-wrote the fifth edition of the Natural Death Handbook, available directly from the Natural Death Center, deliberately avoiding Amazon. They both did a TEDx talk entitled Death, Grief, Ritual, and Radical Funerals, and are partners in an art memorialization project with former KLF members, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corty, to build a 23-foot-high pyramid in Toxteth, Liverpool, with each brick containing cremated human remains. They've been described as the best undertakers of all time by a country mile by the Good Funeral Guide. So, welcome to the show, Rupert. Thank you very much for having me on, Michael. I'm thrilled to be uh, thrilled and suffering from a little bit of imposter syndrome uh, <laughs> being described as a leadership luminary. But there we go. We'll let that go. Well, I'm. I've as uh, you shouldn't feel that way, in my opinion, because uh, when I talked to my friend Jane Duncan the other day, she says she's heard of you by reputation, although she hasn't actually talked to you, and. Uh, you know, from what, uh, if people go to your website, which we'll give the address away uh, later, they'll see what you've been up to, what you are up to. And I think it's really cool. So um, thank you. You're very welcome. I've been looking forward to this. So we'll just kick on with the first, um, first question. Please tell me about how your own experience of uh, bereavement led you to start the Green Funeral Company. Well, it was all really quite quite simple in some ways um i had a lot of bereavement uh, as a child my father um died when i was seven and within the next three or so months um my two remaining grandparents both died and my aunt died and uh, as was the the moors of the time i basically didn't go to the funerals uh and my father's in particular and i think I never really got a chance to kind of unpick this with my mother as to why 
what her thinking was. But, you know, this was Edinburgh in the 1970s. And I imagine really that there was quite a lot of advice from all sorts of people, uh, including probably the funeral director, that um, as a seven year old, I wouldn't really know what was going on. And, uh, you know, I would be distressed to see my mum grieving and all that sort of stuff. So I was effectively excluded from um, at least four major family funerals. Uh, and this had kind of quite a profound effect on me. But it, in the way of these things, it took me a while to realise that um, that it had such an effect on me. And then when I was 25, um, my mother died. And it was at that point I realised that I was out of sync with my own bereavement and that really my mother's death brought up the unresolved issues of my father's death. Um, so... And then I just got lucky. I saw, I saw, I don't know, do you remember Janet Street Porter was, uh, at one point was head of the Ramblers Association. She had a, a programme on early evening BBC uh, in which she'd go on a nice walk and she'd meet interesting people along the way. And she was, she met this guy called Nicholas Albury, who had set up a charity called the Natural Death Centre, which was to basically mirror what the natural birth movement had achieved. And um, I saw him for five minutes on the television uh, and I was quite a dissolute, um, 20, uh, quite lost uh, 29 year old at that stage. I was actually, um, I, can, I can say this because I've, I've just written a book and I've admitted all of this. So I was, I was sitting on the sofa smoking a joint and uh, he started talking about how you didn't need to be buried in a churchyard and how you didn't even really need a funeral director because in essence the family was the funeral director so that was it five minutes watching him on the television and I stood up and went that's it I'm an undertaker um and I rang him up the next day and got a copy of the natural death handbook which I think was probably the third edition then which was a very practical um slightly based on the kind of whole earth catalogue style of publishing which told you everything you needed to know about how to deal with the dead um, and emotionally, spiritually, practically everything. So that was it. I read that. Um, I arranged to go and see a dead body to make sure that I wasn't going to immediately faint, which I didn't. Uh, I talked some more. I did some interviews. I did a little bit of press. I did a piece on Radio Cornwall. Uh, where I was living. I did it at six in the morning, which is actually peak listening time for local radio. Um, it, it really is, you know, wow. local radio, everyone's is, is mainly an elderly listenership and they're all very perky at six in the morning. So um, the phone rang within 20 minutes of me being on it and someone said, can you do a funeral? And uh, that was it. I started. Wow. That's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I just, I sorry, I, I'm laughing because I can't. It's six o'clock, perky. <laughs> Doesn't I? I can't compute. Well, um, no, you. I don't. I imagine you're you're not necessarily a, a local BBC radio listener. Uh, no, no. no I'm, I'm also not an early morning person. Um, so, so death. This is. Uh, I mean, it's difficult to talk about, isn't it? Um, and. This is a kind of odd question, really. You have an interesting background, I know that. Um, was there anything in your character or your influences and upbringing 
that fitted you for this alternative approach to helping people transition? None that I could possibly have foreseen until uh, until it struck me like Paul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, really. I, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, when I when I talk that when I say that we bring our, our experiences uh, in my, my, my ex partner and I, you know, she was um, she worked in the music business and was a, uh, a bit older than me, seven years older than me. So she'd been a punk. Um, she'd been the only punk in mine head. Uh, and then and then when rave came along, we were both ravers. And I think really when when the idea of setting up as a funeral director, um, I, I don't want to say funeral director. I call myself an undertaker. I, I should find yeah. myself bound every time I call myself a funeral director. Um, but when I when when we decided to start up as undertakers, it was just kind of obvious of going punk had uh, had swept through nearly every other area of life and transformed it and and to a certain extent so had kind of rave culture and youth culture in general had transformed everything but it hadn't transformed funerals and funerals still were stuck in this in this kind of victorian aspect uh, and were very much the preserve of the church and the preserve of it's, it's a very male industry it's quite masonic um wow. it's traditional it's traditional working class mm. uh you know and, and i'm i'm not i'm kind of fallen scots fallen posh so um it just struck me that it was really really obvious that we could come in and bring all of the the lessons of punk and rave and apply them to funerals yeah i mean that, that's that's really what I was getting at. It's a great answer because my instinct was that you've taken, you know, the spirit of punk and rave was was a kind of uh, varying forms of revolution in yeah. my view, um, yes. of of expression of 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 liberation, um, yeah. and so it struck me that maybe this is that's why I said is it fitted you your background and, and interest to to this because what you've created and what you've been doing for the last 20 years is in a way a liberation from uh you know what went before you've just described that you just talked about it and yeah. you've taken and what's great and why i think you're a leadership luminary i'll go back to that even though you think you're an imposter <laughs> i want to respectfully say that i think you've shown incredible entrepreneurial spirit in, in taking something that's culturally um, uh, catalytic and brought it into a whole field. And it's, you've made it, it's a niche now for you and you've made it something special. I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled by what you've been doing to the point where, um, you know, I quite seriously, I would be very interested in, well, you're, you're not geographically close to me. No, no. But, uh, I mean, if there was someone like you where I live, when I go, yeah, I to have. Well, there are, you know, there are, there is, there is a kind of, there is a movement that sprung up, which is probably, you know, about 20 years old now. Um, I think I'm, I'm probably still the most ornery of them, really. Uh, because, yeah, you're right. I do think those, those subcultures were about, um, they were about revolution. And I think there's, uh, and I think, you know, you, I'm very aware that the natural death movement um, owes a, a big debt to the hippies 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and not not just my personal debt to punk and Ray, but the, very much the hippie subculture, which in turn goes back to uh, you know the, the radical dissenters. And there, there's a there's a long line of uh, of sort of DIY culture mm. in this country. Uh, and I think I was really just kind of tapping into that and realizing that nobody w- w- was actually kind of properly doing it with funerals. And um, and it struck me as fairly obvious that. Uh, that, you know, a lot of the things around you, you know, the, the worst thing has happened when somebody dies. Yeah. You, you, you know, they, you can't kill them. You can't make them more dead. You can, you know, that you can, uh, I suppose you can disrespect their body and you can mistreat their body, but you're not going to actually hurt them. So the, the kind of mechanics of, of looking after a body are, are just kind of common sense, really. But the, the other side of it, of, of giving back ownership of the experience to people wasn't being done. And, I'd, and I don't think it was being done necessarily from a, a hugely malicious um, reasons, though, you know, though, of course, corporations move into, move into all of these things. And, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and I would possibly include the, the kind of organised church as, as a kind of corporation at that point. But it was really obvious that, the, that I started off knowing what not to do if that makes sense, Michael. Mm-hmm. You know, my, I had been excluded from my father's funeral uh, and, and I adored my, my father and he was, uh, he had a big funeral um, and I was kind of absented from it. Mm. So it was really, really obvious. And then when I went through the experience of my own mother's funeral, she kind of went the other way. She, she um, slightly over-organised it uh, and in fact wrote her a note the night before she died saying bossy boots still at it you know and it was listing what everybody was to do so at her funeral uh, there was nothing to do um there it was all done for you there was you know uh, the, the 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 guys with the, in the ill-fitting suits and the dandruff all the same height holds, you know with the coffin and and to actually even get near the grave yeah to actually see what was happening i had to kind of jostle my way to the front so it was really, really, it, the idea arrived fully formed, uh, really. It was like, I'm going to be an undertaker. I'm going to do it completely differently. I'm going to strip it back. I'm not going to have a, a showy car. I'm not going to wear a, um, striped trousers all the time. I'm not going to, uh, you know, uh, be like Uriah Heep. I'm just going to be very honest and truthful and transparent and, and help people to understand that really... A lot of this world is 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 quite rightly unregulated because you're in a grey area. When you know our, our our all of our human knowledge stops at death, we're all amateurs at the point of death. So I think there's something very liberating about um, letting everybody know that while we're all amateurs, we're also all kind of professionals as well. That uh, that we can all do this, and you just need somebody to accompany you through it um as i said it was all it, literally it all came to me in that five minutes and uh, nicholas albury has now died uh, very sadly was was killed in a car accident um about four four years after i'd spoken to him but i never met him i and i literally saw him on the television for for five minutes and he changed my life absolutely just changed my life because there's no way that i i you know Funeral directing is a closed shop 
really. And it's handed down. It's a it's a traditional thing that's quite often handed down from families. And there was no way I would have worked out that what I wanted to be was an undertaker unless I had seen what was basically uh, an old hippie going, here's an, here's an old hippie way of doing it. Well, yeah, and, and sort of the difference between funeral director and undertaker. Can you elaborate on that? Because you're very passionate about the fact you're an undertaker, not a funeral director. Well, it depends who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to to people in the crematorium who I have in a crematorium I haven't used before, then I do go, I am the funeral director. But there is, you know, it's very difficult to say that word, those two words, without capitalizing them. You know, it's funeral mm. director. And the implication of that, of course, is that you direct everything. Right. And quite there's, you know, there is also implications that the buck stops with you, which is as it should be. But I prefer Undertaker because, um, you know, the roots of the word Undertaker are uh, you undertake a pledge, basically. You're undertaking to deal with the dead for the sake of the living. And, and that's, what, that's what the undertaking is. You're going, I undertake to do this for you, with you. So that's why I prefer to call myself an Undertaker. It also wrong-footed a lot of the funeral industry at first because they, they didn't, nobody had called themselves an Undertaker for about, 40 or 50 years really now it's slightly slightly trendy again but but, but it was it was very much it's a, it's a quite an insecure profession in many ways um and and is quite fond of kind of you know uh letters after your names and things like that so i think calling myself an undertaker with a small u was just, it's, just, it's all just a bit more punk isn't it really yeah yeah it, it's um I don't know what to, to ask you next. Is, I mean, I want to ask you about what makes you different from other funeral businesses. I think that would be interesting for people to hear. I mean, there's the eco bit. Yeah. You said to me the other day when we had a chat, you said, well, it's almost like it's redundant now, the green funeral company. But there is the element of eco. Uh, where is. does that fit in? And how else are you different? Yeah, well... Um... So my ex-wife, who, who I ran it with for uh, 21 years, we, we split up a couple of years ago as a, as a couple and we carried on running it for a couple of years, which was, you know, challenging. And uh, it's, I don't know, you've, I think you've worked with, with, with ex-partners. It's a, it's a thing, you know, when you're, when you're involved in something like being undertakers together, you're barely apart um, ever. So it was, it was quite a thing. But the way, one of the ways we differ is, we, and I still only work with one other person. Hmm. So everything that has to be done is done by, between the two of us. So that's collecting the person who's died, bringing them back, dressing them, putting them in the coffin, uh, helping the family come and spend time with them, doing all the paperwork, organising all of that. And then also being the funeral, capital F director, capital D on the day, but also, uh, I take the ceremonies. Uh, and I didn't know I was going to start out, when I started out, that I was going to be taking the ceremonies. But I do, I take probably 90, above 90% of the funerals we do, I, I take the service. Um, and it just came about because someone went, asked me if I would. And I thought, yeah, I've got something to say about this. Um, As opposed to the, the Reverend yes. Smith or... As opposed to the Reverend, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I still very much do 
do religious funerals and work very happily with the clergy and uh, have done military funerals, have done, you know, full Catholic requiem masses, do all of that. But generally, I'm doing funerals for people who are humanists with a small age. Uh, so they're, you know, they might go, well, you know, it's not that I don't, I, I just don't believe in heaven or I, it's not that I'm anti-religious or, you know, I just don't, I don't have a vicar. I, I go, well, I can, well I'll, I'll, I can do that. So, um, and, and the way that I do that is a little bit different as well, simply because of, because none of this, I've, I haven't been taught any of this, Michael, to be honest. I've, I've learned from good books and I've learned from experience. And it's, you know, I think that's, um, some might consider it a bit reckless uh, in some ways to learn like that. But there's, a, you know, when the buck stops with you as it does straight away, then you've got quite a steep learning curve, really. Um, so I, the way I take ceremonies is um, ideally, if the, if the family are agreeable, I won't show them the script. I won't show them what I'm saying. Uh, because if you get into too much checking the sort of what, you know, the celebrant is going to say, then for the family, when it actually happens, you know, it, they, know what it's, they know what's going to be said. My ideal is to try and show the family that they've managed to show a, a, a part of their relationship with the person who's died that they haven't actually vocalised, that the, the, there's something that's so strong in the relationship that I can see it and I can show them that I can see it. And if I get that right, uh, that's, a, that's an incredible gift for them. It, it really is to, to, be, to be fully seen in your, in your relationship, whether, however functional or dysfunctional it is, because you know, the, I, I try not to use euphemisms. I try not to use uh, the, the phrase loved ones because everybody is loved you know uh, violent alcoholic abusers also die and they they deserve a funeral so so I, I try to be as as disarmingly honest about the person as I possibly can which is a bit cheeky because most of the time I've never met them so to, to talk about people's faults um, to the people who love them without having showed them the script is yeah I, again I think Sometimes when I say the stuff out loud, I just go, my God, it's so reckless. You know, but it's, I've got to come in here, Rue. You remind me, I mean, my, my mother passed away last year, last August. And, and I went to the funeral and I gave a, a, a speech, if you like. And I actually did something very similar. I actually talked about her faults all the things that used to drive me nuts and that people, you know, all that. And it, there was a bit of me which went, oh, I can't say this. But then I thought, you know what? And the feedback afterwards from the people there was incredibly positive because it was, it was basically me acknowledging my mother, warts and all, Absolutely. in a real way. And, and, and that was appreciated, it was a gift. Yeah, on there. Um, Absolutely, it's an incredibly powerful thing, and it's and it's no less loving to talk about about someone's faults. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I think it's more I think it's more loving really to to properly talk about them. And I, I I don't know if you when you start I don't know how you did it, but I imagine it was a bit where you where 
you you probably kind of eased you eased into your mother's complexities rather than coming slamming straight into them. Oh yeah. And, and as you yes yeah and as <laughs> when you do that, you can feel the the, the mood palpably shift, and people actually suddenly go, oh my god, we're actually talking. They're actually talking about them. You know, there's that there. This is a recognisable person, and it's yeah. um. It electrifies everyone. It's it's a real it's a real gift. It's a lovely thing to be able to do, but it's it, it's it's risky because it's scary. It makes um makes skin people's skin prickle a little bit because they go, oh my god. What are well, they I think say? also, you know, Rue, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Is that, I mean, it, it occurred to me that you've been doing this a long time now, twenty years. You nearly twenty two. Yeah, can you talk about the impact it's had on you. I mean, you, the way I see it, it's, it's a heroic act on your part to have again and again and again, not just gone through this with families, but actually really put a lot of thought and care and, uh, and realness into it. What impact has that had on you? It, well, yeah, it's at, at times it's had a, an enormous impact. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, that level of engagement um, is grueling. Uh, it really is grueling, and I suppose I kind of ran on. Um, I ran on enthusiasm, and when I first started it, I um, I was still uh, going to all night parties, so there was a lot of catharsis which i could uh, i could i could basically rave out of my system i could kind of you know there's um uh to, to be entirely honest and so I, and now there is a great deal of of um programs into uh how mdma yep um is, is incredibly useful for people with ptsd yes because it, it works uh, the, the you know it works on the part of the brain the amygdala and dampens down the fear response. So people who are, who are stuck in a kind of loop of PTSD can go and have, you know, maybe only just one session with a good therapist and quite often be cured of seemingly incurable um, depression and PTSD. And I kind of self, um, sort of self-medicated myself through that, through the early years, because that's what I was doing. And it allowed me to, it allowed me to, to feel, because quite early on, the very on the funerals we were doing were um, were extremely heavy. Were uh, lots of suicides and lots of young people and lots of children. Slightly because we were doing it in an alternative. So I, I kind of the first ten years I, I, I kept going through through cathartic raving, through enthusiasm and and sheer um, fervor, I suppose. And also doing it with um, with my partner, who who then became my wife. So we were a very tight unit. We didn't have to debrief. We didn't have a supervision like therapists did. We had each other for it. But after a bit, it did start to bite. And I think we both went through different stages. Um, I definitely nearly burnt out uh, a few years back, probably about probably about four or five years ago, I nearly burnt out. Um, but before that, I also went through, which was even scarier, uh, 
a brief of compassion fatigue of just kind of going, well, I don't, I don't, this isn't affecting me anymore, which was, which was scarier than going, I think I'm going to have a breakdown with the grief. Yeah. But I, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to avoid going, you know, traditionally funeral directors have, um, uh, are heavy drinkers um, uh-huh. as are, you know, a lot of people who are involved in, in trauma work, you know, doctors and, you know, that, that's the, the traditional way to cope with it. So um, I've had to be very careful with that uh, and, and try to, you know, and also I'm Scottish, so I have um, a propensity towards um, uh, alcohol. So uh, I, I've had to watch that and I've had to try and and bring attention to myself and just be just watch for the warning signs um but it's 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 but almost like a it's almost one of those self um self-perpetuating perpetual motion machines because whilst there is a a great deal of of, of it's hard being around that amount of grief and physical uh, distress the, the feedback from ordinary people uh, of just seeing how brilliant ordinary people are is enough to kind of counteract the, the worst of it but I, I'm, I'm not going to lie it, it's it's hard you know and I do I, I, I do wonder if I could do it forever um, you know I've 22 years I'm doing it now I'm looking and I, I haven't really got a much of a plan b but I'm going what could I do this for 30 years I mean it, it, it's a very physical job as well you know there, there's a lot of lifting uh, involved um, so yeah, it's. I'm. I'm not going to lie. It, there's been times when I've worried for how how I have how I've been coping with it. Thank you very much for uh, you know sharing that. Um, I did wonder, and and I also admire you for um, sticking with it because you're you're basically living a life of service, um, and what you're doing is is hugely helpful to many people, incredibly, profoundly helpful. And um, I take my hat off to you. Um, I'm just wondering, I've got a sort of a bit of a left field, probably for you, question here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> the, the qualities that you need to do what you do, um, how do you think they, what are the implications for other people in business, leaders? Um, relative to those qualities that are acquired. Um, do you think there's a, uh, what's the word, um, a connection between what you do and what leaders should be doing or could do? Um, yeah, definitely. But it's but how to sustain that is, is the question because what you have to, you know, um, You've you've been through as you said you 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 lost your mother last year and I I don't imagine that was your first bereavement I mean it, it might be my my father my ex father in law lived to seventy um, before going through his first proper bereavement but um, most people have had quite a few bereavements by the time they they're kind of in their fifties and um, you know you you're you you're familiar with the state which is a very um, it's almost psychedelic uh, grief. It's an extremely bizarre 
bizarre place to be and it's like and it's an existential state and it lasts a long time you know you you're in shock but culture popular culture tells you that shock is something that just makes you stare into space a bit and you have a cup of hot sugary tea and you're all right whereas you know shock is an extremely useful thing but it's it's an existential state so when dealing with people who are bereaved you have to be you have to watch them you have to do you have to do what therapists call active listening which is you know be be aware of, of of not just of what's being said but what's not being said as well and it's quite easy to do with somebody who who something awful has happened to because you're just you're watching them and listening to them so closely and trying to work out you you're you're focusing on them entirely really and trying to work out what they not necessarily what they want, but what they need and how to give them that. And that would be the ideal state for all of us to be in with all of us every, all of the time. But I don't know how I, I don't do it with, I do focus on people, I like people, but I don't know whether I give people the, the focus that I give them if somebody's died and come to me for help. But that should be the way that, that, that leaders are listening to people. Well, it's, it's listening. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, what, what you're saying is brilliant. Um, it's brilliant because, um, and I know that, you know, you're a businessman. However, you know, I'm sort of in the whole world of what's going on with especially bigger corporations and, and so on. And I can tell you that in the last 18 months, because of you know what, um, what's emerged is this um, recognition that, in fact, even some people will say the most important characteristic of a great leader now is empathy. Yeah. It, which involves the active listening, which involves putting your focus 100% on the other person or the people to find Absolutely. out what they need. Yeah. Uh, and and so, so that is in, it's interesting because that's why I was sort of getting at because the qualities that you've cultivated or the, the practice that you've cultivated to do that is exactly, you're right, what ideally all leaders should be doing. Yes, yeah. And the key also, to, in my mind, Rue, is it's about service to others, not self. Now, a lot of these leaders in the corporate world, they're, they're worried about themselves more than other people. You know, yeah. are they going to hit the targets? Are they going to survive? What's their reputation going to be like? Are they handling it properly? You know, genuinely as well. I mean, there's a... A genuine, um, you can understand why corporate leaders, for example, organizational leaders in general, are worried about their performance in this environment, right? Yeah. Uh, but the trick is, in my view, is to create a context for yourself where you're, where you're coming from is service to others. Because if, you, if you're worried about yourself all the time, you, how on earth can you do what you do yeah you have to put yourself aside to focus on them to listen properly to really find out what they need that is putting yourself to one side yeah would yeah. you agree with that I, I would totally agree with that i and uh, i kind of feel i could see i, I feel for people i you know i don't I've, I've very very little contact with the corporate world um I'm a, I'm a kind of lone wolf, as it were. And you, you call me a businessman. I'm a sort of accidental businessman, really. I'm just lucky enough to have 
have found uh, um, something that, that that feeds me in every sense. Um, and I can see that, yes, that's exactly what it, what is needed it is empathy. Uh, but uh, but I wonder whether it's possible for corporate leaders who are sort of moving in a corporate world in which they kind of move from one uh, business to another and are kind of headhunted by one, you know, and go into a completely different organisation, whether it's possible to maintain that that kind of um, degree of empathy. I was lucky enough when I first started doing this to get an invite to meet um, Anita Roddick uh, and to pitch an idea to her about... Um, she was a good friend of mine. Oh, but you know what? I, I I only met her. She 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 came. She invited myself and Claire up um, to her flat, and uh, we had a couple of hours with her. And my God, the woman! I just thought she was so brilliant. She it was it was literally a few months before she died. Yeah. Uh, and she she'd gone. She said to us, we were talking about trying to set up a a, a new crematorium, and she was like, "Great, you know, go and go and draw up some plans and." Come come back and introduce you to people who, who you know who, who lend money but don't particularly want it back you know you're good people but I was so struck by um her integrity uh and the empathy and the lack of uh the lack of self-importance that she has she you know she was a, a, a little bit guilt she she was obviously feeling a little bit guilty about the L'Oreal thing she brought that up a couple of times but you know it's like as far as I was concerned, she she changed enough things to be able to to sell out to a big company like that. But but she had that because that was her vocation, mm. and she was so good at what she did because she believed in it one hundred percent. And I think that if it's very very difficult to have empathy for your your the, the people who work for you, unless you do believe in what you're doing. Um, That's so true, isn't it? I mean the it's. Well, it goes back to the thing that I'm always banging on about, as people who know me will, if they listen to this, it's, it's authenticity, because yeah. authenticity liberates. Absolutely. And it, you know, and it liberates you to, to, and therefore you give of your best because you are being authentic. And uh, I get emotional about Anita because, uh, you know, I was very devastated when she died mm. and um we knew each other we used to meet up in new york and in london and um this is a long story how we got to meet and that was amazing and but you're right she was an extraordinary woman who who had that compassion and that empathy for people absolutely so, and that regardless of who they were see that's yes. the, that's the other thing forget about hierarchies forget about you know titles and all the rest of it she was authentic with everyone absolutely absolutely yes and i and i think that is one thing that um that people could be as well you know leaders could do that but because people hunger for authenticity we we live in such a an artificial society that that when you present somebody with something authentic even if it's uh if it's quite edgy um, or, 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 you know, quite unpleasant or quite difficult to, to, to deal with, a difficult concept, you know, issues around social issues. There, there's a, um, a programme I, I saw on uh, BBC last night. I think it's called uh, Alma's Not Right. I just saw one episode of it. And it's very funny, but it's very gritty as well. 
but but people are hungry for that authenticity they're hungry for something that's real which is one of the the, the great things about working around death is you know basically bullshit goes when somebody yeah. dies it's the first it's the pretty much the first casualty um and 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 families can try and and maintain a um you know a facade that everything's fine but but you also discover there's no such thing as a functional family you know everybody everybody is the same everybody's beautifully broken but uh, yeah, yeah. it's wonderful it's wonderful to be around stuff where there's no bullshit and yeah. everybody hungers for that in their lives yeah. uh, and and it is it's authenticity they just want to they just want one thing that's real even if it's not particularly pleasant they just want something that's real mm. wow um we could go on talking for a long time um yes. i'm fascinated by the concept of you know of death in uh my mentor in london back in the day was used to talk about mini deaths as well um that we're going through mini deaths all the time every day every moment and one of the things we need to become accustomed to is the idea of dying and dying and dying and dying another way of putting that is perhaps to say we need to be to get used to letting go um and, yeah. I, and I think that you know again an application in in the business world um in a very personal way for people is the importance of being able to let go yeah and, and that manifests in many ways you know letting go of control again now in the current environment if people are if bosses managers leaders uh, are over controlling because of their own insecurity and fear um they need to let go and yeah. trust because you've got to trust people now because we're all over the place and we're yeah. all, and we're all, <laughs> you know what i mean so Absolutely. i do yeah yeah no letting go uh, the wisest thing someone said to me was a friend of mine um when i was having a i can't remember what particular emotional crisis i was wading through at the time but um she just said to me things change and two words and it, it was just and it's so kind of obvious but it's just like yeah that's it you just have to go yeah things change and we are we are dying all the time bit by bit we're dying the moment we're born and um and i i find that hard to to you know i as i think i, I probably said at the, at the talk we met and i've certainly I, I really do make a point of going. I, I am not uh, a better person because of, of what I do. You know, it has not. Um, it is not. Sadly, I have not become Buddha. I, I really hoped that I would have. You know, by now, become an ascended master. Um, but I haven't really. But it. it but it's just. Um, but I, I. I do. I do try to cling to the idea that yes, you know, letting go is is the only thing we can do in this life is just let go with some degree of grace well i'll tell you what you might not have become buddha but you certainly represent to me what is the most important force in the universe sounds like a cliche doesn't it but it is love in all its form and as yeah. for regardless of all the form um you represent uh in my mind 
someone who's a very loving, genuinely loving human being. And so, well, well, I've been lucky. I've been around. I've been I've been around a lot of loving people, and I would also. Uh, I would also credit um, my experiences uh, raving with with showing me, um, you know, I, 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 I was packed off to boarding school not long after my father died. So I did 10 years in boarding school and, and my experiences um, at raves not long after just shattered any kind of notion I had of, of, of difference, uh, you know, any kind of any idea of, of class, social, sexual segregation, just blown apart the first time I went to to a rave, and I and I really do put a lot of uh, of my practice down down to that. You know, I do I do believe a lot of I, I learned a lot of love there, but I'm lucky enough to have met a lot of loving people along the way. Well, yeah, but you you attract them as well, so good for you. Oh. I, I, I'll tell you what, I. I um, yeah, I, I'll never forget the first time in 1989 when I went to a, an all-nighter in London, and uh, I still I still turn on. I go to YouTube and get it, get live, you know, recordings of the yes. rave um, events. Yes, incredibly uplifting. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So okay, well we're going to have to wrap up, uh, Rue. Yeah. And I just want to remind everyone, um, because we started a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't actually that long in actual time, but um, I thought I talked too much, Michael. I'm sorry. I, I never never let anyone get a word in anyway. No, no, no. I didn't think you did. I think it was great. It's just we covered a lot of ground. An amazing coincidence again, like yeah. Anita. And, um, so um, I'm talking to Rupert Callender who's the founder of the Green Funerals Com Funeral Company. <clears throat> and uh, how can people get in touch with you? Would, can, do you want to give the website or any other content? Uh, yeah, you can. Uh, I, if you do go to my website, please bear with me because it's, we are updating it, but it is very old school. So it's uh, www.thegreenfunerallcompany.co.uk. Um, I am lucky enough to be having my manuscript. I've been commissioned to write a book by uh, Chelsea Green. Uh, and if they can hack it into some sort of shape, um, then that will be out at some point because I have actually written it, which is a, a miracle. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I've, we, we did a fairly bonkers TED talk in which uh, I, every time I, I haven't seen it that many times, when I look at it, I kind of it does appear to be calling for the almost the storming of heaven, really. So uh, it, 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 it escalates quite quickly. Um, <laughs> well, it would with you. <laughs> and I, and, well, and I'm on I'm on Twitter as ways with weirds as well. But you know that could be anything from my aquarium to angry political rants to nice funerals. And everything in between. Okay, how do you how do you uh, spell that that Twitter address? Ways with weirds. Uh, it's a bit of a uh, it's a little bit of a, um, a, a nudge at Dartington who have a, a, a book festival called Ways with Words. It's a little bit of a tease. Ways with weirds. Okay, so W A Y S W I I T H W E I R D S. 
that's it. That's your Twitter handle. Because, you know, this, this show goes out to all over the world. So you're going to get people with, from different countries, different languages. So that's why I sort of spell it out. Um, right. All right. And uh, Rupert Calendar is uh, Rupert, R-U-P-E-R-T, C, and then Calendar, C-A-L-L-E-N-D-E-R. And I can't uh, mention the name of the book that's going to be coming out because you don't have a title for it yet. I don't have a title for it yet, no. Do you know what it might, it might be called? Rave to the Grave. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a working title, but I, you know, I'd like to call it uh, This is the Moment Between the Click and the Bang, but I think my publishers think that's a bit esoteric and weird. <laughs> so we'll okay. see. All right. Well, uh, anything else you'd like to finally say to the audience? Uh, just thank you so much, uh, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. Um, really, really lovely to meet you. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, let's hope we continue to stay friends. And I am sure uh, we will, without a doubt. Brilliant. Excellent. All right. Take care. Bye bye.